You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 24th of September 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello, this is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to the programme. Coming up today... This is politics. Politics is politics. And the law doesn't get involved. No. Wrong, 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 wrong. The law in democracy gets involved in everything, I'm afraid. And B. Johnson takes note. My guests Robert Fox and Somnath Batabayal are here to discuss Judgment Day in the United Kingdom after the Supreme Court finds Boris Johnson broke the law and suspended Parliament illegally. Plus, we look ahead to Donald Trump's warning to the UN on Iran, and we hear how tech giants are banding together to fight extremist content. Plus, we hear about a Bauhaus revival in London, which you can see on the street. As a German designer, you know, it's an honour to bring Bauhaus here, and for me, living and working in London even more. To bring Bauhaus on the streets of, of uh, London is it's just fantastic. And we hear about SAS, the Scandinavian flag carrier, which has unveiled a fresh livery as part of a broader shift in a more sustainable direction. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle's House View starts now. And a very warm welcome to the programme. We begin, as ever, with a longer look at some of the day's main stories with our news panel. Today, I'm joined in the studio by Somnath Batabayal, lecturer in media and development and international journalism at SOAS here in London, and Robert Fox, defence editor for the London Evening Standard. Gentlemen, welcome to the programme. Let's begin with the Supreme Court's ruling that Parliament was suspended illegally. Somnath, your jaw dropped. You know, I... One of the things as a journalist I can't say anymore is that I'm uh, being objective about this. I'm delighted. Uh, Delighted not because of which side of Brexit I am on, but the fact that the court's judgment finally tells us that somebody cannot run away with your democracy. You know, all the questions about the dark arts and comings and special advisors has been put to a stop. And the Supreme Court has clearly said everything is under the law, the ambit of the law even Boris Johnson. It changes everything. A lot of things will come after this, which is, uh, you know, questions will be asked that do we need a written constitution? Uh, As Robert has already talked about, it goes back to the Bill of Rights. So there's a long, long, many, there'll be many reactions to this. Uh, But as a judgment, it's phenomenal. Robert, there's an incredibly strong point here made by Somnath, namely that we're looking at all these other countries around the world. The United States comes to mind immediately. And they've looked at the British system for a long time as the mother of all parliaments, the example of democracy. And today's judgment is just another endorsement of that idea, isn't it? it but it's moved, it, it's moved the story on in a way, as we have just heard, because what Johnson was really saying in asking for the prorogation is that I can go back to an ancient principle, which is royal prerogative, which means I can damn well do what I like. I can decide when Parliament shuts down. By the way, there have been arguments in Canada about this where they came to a very similar conclusion. You can't prorogue, you can't stop Parliament in its tracks because you're going to face an adverse uh, vote. I think this is... No, I'm not going to go back to the Bill of Rights, but I'm going back to Tony Tony Blair going to war in Iraq. I think the law comes into politics uh, more and more. We will soon have a law about going to war. 
everything that happens with the executive, that is the government, has to be legal. What is so astonishing for me is the uh, the appeal that was being he- heard against the English Appeal Court, the most senior judges, the master of the roles, all these fancy titles, who said it couldn't be justiciable. Sorry, in plain languages, this is politics, politics is politics, and the law doesn't get involved. No, wrong, 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 wrong. The law in democracy gets involved in everything, I'm afraid. And B. Johnson take, takes note, to come back to you, to the practical politics knowing, as we both do, Boris very well. He's going to wriggle like mad. But is he really going to go into an election with about two-thirds, three-quarters of the electorate probably saying they know that he acted illegally, that he now has spots on his record as mayor of London? Are we holding our nose, as they did with Richard Milhouse Nixon, and voting for a crook. It will be interesting to see what Boris's popularity ratings will be in the in the next few days, given the fact that on paper some are some are saying that his decision to shut down Parliament and to try to block a no deal, um, and sorry, to try to push through a no deal if necessary, was one of the worst political decisions in history. He lost twenty one members of Parliament. He lost the no deal vote. Now he's found to have acted illegally. Nonetheless, the Tory Party heart. Land adores him. And actually, because of his celebrity, a lot of other people, and in terms of his national popularity, actually think he's all right because he sticks, he tries to stick two fingers up at the institutions. But he's part of the institutions. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, of course. Look at his background and where he comes from. He's institutionalized to the core. And um, I mean, look, if in a general election it actually happens that the population votes for a person who has been clearly told by the Supreme Court that you have acted unlawfully, you have given wrong advice to the Queen, and we still vote for him to be back in the executive. I mean, you know, it, it wouldn't speak very highly of um, our countrymen and women. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I do think that, though, that whatever the popularity ratings are, whatever uh, small, tiny faction of the Tory membership uh, might say this does change things you know when a court the highest court of the land says you have acted unlawfully you have acted illegally uh, it does change a lot it's a game changer this one let's move on to uh, another character who likes to stick two fingers up at convention uh, president donald trump having skipped the climate summit yesterday president trump will speak to the un about issues he's arguably a little more comfortable with not much more comfortable with though naming upping pressure on iran having shown restraint when it came to the use of military force against tehran over the attacks on saudi oil facilities what are his options uh, right robert do you want to start with what Donald Trump should and is likely to be saying to the UN today? I think it'll be a lot of verbiage, which it will be very, very difficult to navigate the way through immediately. Because um, the one thing, he doesn't want to go to war against Iran on behalf of Saudi Arabia. That is absolutely plain. He is being told by his evangelicals who go um, onto the Christian Zionist spectrum, namely Pompeo and Pence, you've got to back Israel. But which Israel is he going to back? Because there's confusion and chaos. And for goodness sake, the possibility of a third general election having to be held in Israel before, before the end of the year. And note 
since the election on the 17th of September, Trump has barely uttered a squeak on behalf of his old friend, the hard man who was always for upping the ante against Iran, namely one Benjamin Netanyahu. Mm. So what he is going to say, he's going to hump and trump and be very noisy and rude, and he's going to put his big fat backside on his hands, and he's going to do nothing. <laughs> Samnath, who is who is uh, Donald's um, Donald Trump's audience here today? Is it... Uh, the United Nations, is it Benjamin Netanyahu, or is it in fact the US electorate who will decide whether he stays in the White House next year? So one of the things, um, I mean, uh, before I answer the question, just, uh, I mean, a short understanding of our history, the last 200 years, whenever the West has got entangled in the Middle East, they have done massive wrong. You know, mm. uh, our world is so destabilized because of the last 200 years of policy, the English, the US, Whatever. We could arguably go back to the Crusades, actually. Yeah, yeah, we? <laughs> we could just go on and on, right? The, We've got four. Yeah. Yeah, we've got to go to back to Genghis Khan. <laughs> yeah, yes, there you, well, there you go. But, you know, whatever Iran has done, I mean, you know, and, uh, there are rogue elements. There are nothing. It, it has done nothing comparable to what the West, namely the US, has done in the last 50 years in the Middle East. So that morally, whatever Trump wants to say does not work. Of course, he'll play to his electorate. But as you have just said, he cannot afford to go to war. It's not possible. I mean, even him, they'll not allow him to go to war. Even his most right-wing, most evangelical advisors possibly cannot, because the ramifications before another election comes up is too much. The human cost is too much. So let's look a little bit at those who he can appeal to. Um, He's not got the reputation, Robert, of being um, very conciliatory with the likes of France and Germany on lots and lots of issues, namely Iran. But he got some important important backing this week, didn't he, at at the UN, given the fact the United Kingdom, Germany and France all blamed Iran for the attack on the Saudi um, oil processing plants. Yes, because it, it it does appear to have been Iranian stuff. Mm. Uh, drones, ordnance, and, and ground-to-ground rockets. Um, but they are being cautious. Uh, belligerent Boris has been belligerent. But this is the style of the authoritarian populist. And Boris Johnson and, and uh, Trump are like that together. Turn it on its head. The game plan of Iran although it's high risk, is much easier to work out. They're provoking and provoking and provoking, and they want to open up the whole negotiation. I was just thinking, uh, a bit of window dressing, what Trump will say, more sanctions, uh, whatever that means. Uh, Iran wants to get out of the the sanctions. And actually, what they're really doing, and this is why the provocation is, the timing of it is a little difficult to understand with the uh, attack, is that they want to move to some backstairs negotiation. They'd like to do it quickly, but I think um, uh, they may be working towards the after Trump because I think there is a general feeling in the international community for various reasons, uh, principally the economy, that Trump may not win. Trump may not even run, I think, because he doesn't like to be seen uh, uh, as a loser. So there's a big game going on. And funny enough, we can talk about Trump, but the other uh, Western ally whose uh, uh, modus operandi is very difficult to understand, is France. Now, France has always been the friend of Iran. But what is it really doing? Because it's the only one who's saying, 
let's keep the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal of 2015 going. Everybody, including Tehran, knows that that's dead. And really, it's curiously not so much for all the what the, the bluster that Boris has said. It's not Britain that's out of line. Britain, Germany, and the interesting guys in the American administration are all talking off the same hymn sheet. But it's Macron, which is so difficult to understand. Sorry, absolute axiom. Saudi Arabia has neither the military depth, the strategic depth, or the social depth of Iran. It cannot take on Iran in in a war short of nuclear, and nobody's going to drop a nuclear bomb on, 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 on behalf of the kingdom, I'm afraid. So what are the options remaining to the likes of France, Germany, the United Kingdom? At, earlier on this weekend, we had the Saudi foreign minister confirming that they had had consultations with the British government about possible military support. So you have this really difficult situation, don't you, that you have... Emmanuel Macron coming to the UN saying, I want to act as a mediator, I want to talk. But in the background, those who are supposed to be his allies are actually saying, OK, we can't openly do this, but there could be some private support offered. Somnath. Uh, Robert, do you want to go? Yes, because I I have got a whiff of what's going on. Uh, Trump has announced reinforcements. They're not big reinforcements to the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Not announced, Britain has also reinforced. It's sent in several contingents, I mean, quite a large number by British standards, of Royal Marines. It's put all three of its frontline ships because they were due to come off duty, one possibly even two, on frontline duty. But the back briefing is, this is defensive. If we are further provoked, if there is a swarm attack coming from Iran, so... I think you're absolutely right, as I wrote somewhere. I hope there are some backstairs broad enough and wide enough and deep enough for some really good conversation going. Because whatever you think, and we know they're being pushed by the hardliners, people like Zarif, particularly the foreign minister, really are extremely agile diplomats. Mm. And they're about your best chance. Can can I just quickly ask you, Robert, uh, if Iran, if Iraq is not... Iran is not trying the 2015 negotiation. If that is dead, if the if that treaty is dead, what are the possible deals they are looking for? Well, it's quite clear what the American deal is that they want missiles mm. thrown in as well, as well as nuclear. And I think Iran would be prepared to move on that, provided the guarantee of the outlet of oil, which goes to India and above all to China. But it's also access to dollar markets. Yeah. I mean, there really is a big trade. And I'm quite optimistic, oddly, because I think the fact that in, 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 in billiards terms that Israel is in bulk, it's, mm. it's rammed up against the cushion of the table and the balls can't play because of what's going on there. So you can stop all that silliness. It means it gives you tremendous opportunity uh, uh, to move around. And they actually need Iran for whatever Israel says because of Hezbollah, all the Hezbollahs, the Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Hezbollah versions in, in, in Syria and, uh, and in Iraq to really start draining the poison from the Syrian crisis, which is still very, very toxic. Robert, are we at a stage where the, the, the nuclear deal is, is dead? You mentioned it just there, almost as a passing comment. And actually, I suspect that a lot of people not least the French and the Germans, would think that there is still space for it to to come back. And the two factors that have clearly compromised it terribly are Donald Trump's withdrawal from mm. withdrawal of America from it, but also the way that Iran has been perceived to be behaving in the last few weeks and months in terms of 
taking tankers, attacking oil fields and this, that, the other. But giving but, tankers back now. But giving tankers back now. And if... On the one hand, you say that, you know, the deal's dead. But on the other hand, we say that Donald Trump could be gone within a year. There is space, surely. The king is dead. Long live the king. That's really what's going on. That one's on the ta- uh, off the table. The problem is America, because of the whole Bolton farrago. It's very interesting that Trump just got fed up with this aggressive, completely unsupported talk from Bolton, which it does tell you something. But they don't have the personnel. This has come out in Samantha Powers, criticism and so on. They, the negotiating teams aren't, aren't in place, as we, as we have seen um, with Greenblatt and the others on, 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 on the great famous uh, breakthrough uh, on, on the peace plan for, for Palestine and Israel. It's just not happening. And I think that's what Europe and the UN and Gutierrez realises, you know, don't expect... Don't, don't expect even to get a small idea, let alone a big idea, out of Washington at the moment. Somnath Batavel and Robert Fox there. We'll be back in just a moment, but first here's Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Emma. Iran has criticised a joint statement by France, Germany and the UK, which blames Tehran for attacks on Saudi Arabia's oil installations. Iran's foreign minister accused the nations of parroting absurd US claims. But European leaders said there was no other plausible explanation for the attacks. Spain's Supreme Court has ruled in favor of exhuming the remains of former dictator Francisco Franco from a state mausoleum near Madrid, where he was placed after his death in 1975. The former general's remains will be moved to a municipal cemetery, likely ending decades of controversy over Franco's burial place. The move has been a priority of the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party since it came to power in June of last year. And Russia could be banned from all major sporting events over fresh doping allegations. The country's been given three weeks to explain inconsistencies in a laboratory database. The World Anti-Doping Agency warns that without a satisfactory explanation, Russia could be banned from the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. Those are the day's news headlines. Now back to you, Emma. Thank you very much, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson. Joining me in the studio is Robert Fox and Somnath Batarail. Now, for some time now, there have been calls for social media companies to collaborate more closely to remove content that's either hardline, extreme or violent. Well, a working group set up by the likes of Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and Microsoft will now be formalised into an independent watchdog. Thomnath, what's your reaction to this? Cynical. Uh, The reason I'm cynical is, again, um, what history teaches us. No global corporate, starting from the East India Company onwards, have ever done anything which curbs their profits. And the entities we are talking about are profit-making entities. They're global, they're huge. Social corporate responsibility hasn't worked. It hasn't worked in the last 30 years. So unless the state steps in and regulates, which the states um, have been unwilling to do, I think this will, too, fade away or will not have the effect required to curb this online menace. How much is the impetus, the, 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 the onus now on big companies, Robert, such as Facebook and YouTube, in the likes of the Christchurch attacks, which is what prompted this working group to be put together? You know, in a little while, we'll be, tra- we'll, traveling to, we'll be crossing to the United States where people, will be, people have told the big companies and the big governments, pull your socks up when it comes to um, climate change. Are we moving towards a similar situation when it comes to online safety and, and, and ensuring that companies behave responsibility, responsibly? 
I'm absolutely with the general tenor of the conversation up to now. You can talk pie in the sky till the cows come home. That is not in their interest. Look at Nick Clegg, Sir Nick Clegg now for Facebook. It is so mealy-mouthed and pious, and you can realise a flock of swans have flown or horses have bolted and so on. The trouble is that what they're also up against with social media is behaviours. And this is what we're seeing in politics. Go back to the beginning. If a lot of the populism in the in the in the, in the in the in the in the Brexit row, it leads to uh, an awful ghettoization where you can only define yourself by what you're against, and it's going to be very very difficult. And for all these uh, watchdogs meeting all over the place, and it is very similar to the problem with climate change, people's self-interest will prevail, and it's there, and it is encouraged. It's catalyzed by this new, new by the new media, and that's the one we've got to start getting our heads around. We've got to find out how to talk and empathise with each other again. Robert Fox and Somnath Batarayal, thank you very much indeed for joining me on Monocle 24. Well, in a moment, the latest view from Monocle's editorial floor. You're listening to the Monocle House View. Stay tuned. As part of the event celebrating a century of the Bauhaus design movement, a street crossing in central London has been painted featuring the women of Bauhaus and celebrating their achievements. Our design editor Nolan Giles heard from Pentagram partner Sasha Lober, who created the installation. So what you see is a kind of a pattern or maybe we could even say a carpet of letters and some of them are not, not really legible. Some of them you can read, it's an R, an F, a P, a J, but some of them are just like signs and not legible letters. But in between there are names, which are of course the names of the female Bauhaus designers. So that play with reading, not reading, getting attention because you can't read it at the first glance, I think that's what we try to, um, to achieve. So let's maybe unpack the different elements. First of all, the, the choice to use females from the Bauhaus as inspiration. Why did you do that? Well, I think it's time. It's just 100 years, right? And actually, some of the names you know, of course, like Lucia Moholy or Annie Albers, but others you don't know, and that's just pretty unfair. It's even when you use research material for a lecture, what I just did because I had a lecture at the Design Museum this week, then there are a lot of photos because Bauhaus was pretty pretty good in propaganda. So pretty good in, yeah, radiating their idea and their not only designs but also all the heroes of the Bauhaus. And you very rarely see uh, female designers. But there are photos. There are complete series of photos of students and masters and teachers uh, from, from the Bauhaus and they are female. So I thought that it's, it's time and it's also new because you can't repeat always the same things and the same messages about, about the Bauhaus. And can you share with us some information about the process? Obviously you're dealing with what we can hear as a very busy stretch of road. It's also very bu- busy in terms of the public that are using this crossing. What were the external factors that you were dealing with and how did you decide to deal with them? Well, actually the process was pretty fine. I mean, we had a great partner with the Design Museum and we played back 
some ideas and it was back and forth of how legible things are or if, if it's really only one or two names or a, a group of artists and designers. We were pretty amazed about the fact that the production turned out so well. So it, it really looks good. It really looks like it will last quite a while. And that's something as a German designer, you know, it, it's an honor to bring Bauhaus here. And for me, living and working in London even more. To bring Bauhaus on the streets of, of uh, London is it's just fantastic. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson. Thank you for tuning in. Finally today, a view from the Monocle editorial floor. Scandinavia is a world leader in the fight against climate change, which is having an adverse effect on the region's flag carrier SAS. Monocle's business editor, Phoenicia Rainey, has more. It's not an easy time to be in the travel industry. Just ask British tour operator Thomas Cook, which went bust this week. But it's especially tricky if you're an airline based in Northern Europe. Here, the concept Fligscam, Swedish for flying shame, is taking off amid a growing public backlash against the environmental impact of aviation. Scandinavian Airlines has reacted by investing in its image and in new planes, firm in its belief that it can be an enabler of democracy and freedom, not just a polluter. We should never forget the the true value of aviation. CEO and President Rickard Gustafsson told Monocle 24's The Globalist. In open society, it's dependent on that people can meet and be inspired by each other. I think the you know the democracies that and the free countries that that some of us at least on this planet live in I think it's also part to the openness and the connectivity I think the, the wealth and the success of many you know, corporates has also come through aviation The Scandinavian flag carrier just unveiled a new livery which it says signals a shift in a new, more sustainable direction The subtle rebrand will debut with the airline's first new long-haul A350 alongside dozens of new A320neos that are joining the fleet SAS says the new craft will cut fuel consumption by 18%, be quieter and offer better comfort for customers. And it's this, rather than a splash of blue on the tail fin, that will help the airline industry in the dogfight it's facing. For Monocle 24, I'm Venetia Rainey. That was Monocle's business editor, Venetia Rainey. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. And Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time, 1300 if you're tuning in in New York City. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Listening.